Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So before we start, we want to give uh, lots of shout outs to all the folks who came to see us at Harvard last week. Uh, folks who've been following the show or following our feeds know that we went to uh, the Harvard Institute of Politics 50th anniversary uh, to do a special live show where we interviewed John Delavolpe, who is... The other millennial expert besides Kristen, <laughs> resident at Harvard, and um, folks should download it. At the, it's the last episode we put out. I think it's 59I. Um, and we also want to give some shout-outs to some listeners who came. Brent Benson, who runs a political website called Mass Numbers. Uh, and, of course, Alex, who drove all the way from Canada to come see us. That was pretty fantastic. Chris Corey, who is a friend of mine and my husband's, who came to check us out. Um, and also some lots of great folks that we've known or admired in the industry. Uh, Ray Struther, who's written a great book about political consulting called Following Up. People should check it out. Um, David Yepsen, who is a long, was a longtime political reporter at the Des Moines Register. Lois Romano from The Post. Um, there were all kinds of fantastic folks. I was really excited to see. It was a really good event. Uh, and in addition to the Harvard IOP 50th, there was uh, the Harvard Political Analytics Conference happening the same time, same day, uh, where got to see a lot of uh, friends of the pollsters, um, including Nate Cohn, who we just had on as our interview show, I think about a week and a half, two, three weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, time is flying. Uh, but it was fun. It was a big, hey, I know you from Twitter. Uh, moment over and over and over again. All these people who I, I know from the the pollster sphere all in one place at one time. It was pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's great. I saw some of those various folks who were at that at the airport and was talking to them about the pollsters were like, oh, that's the thing you do with Kristen. I'm like, that is the thing I do with Kristen. So anyway, so that was all very fun. So what are the top lines this week? Well, Wisconsin is in the can. We have moved on beyond the uh, the Badger State. So what's next? And can the very divided parties actually unify behind their eventual nominees? Then we'll take a look at some state-based races. Uh, 
you you may have forgotten in the midst of all of the presidential candidate <laughs> uh, discussion, but there is uh, a Senate race going on in a number of different states. We will talk about what an undecided Democrat in Maryland, like Margie, might be looking at when she's looking at the Senate race. Um, we'll talk about what millennials like in airports and hotels. Um, we find out that millennials don't like paying for Wi-Fi and this millennial is currently on airport hotel Wi-Fi, so one sympathizes. And finally, the onion strikes again. We will continue with our streak of highlighting the onion's fabulous coverage of our industry. But first, we have our poll of the week, which is, what is creepy? <laughs> Maybe you feel like you have a good idea of what creeps you out. And in fact, the f- authors of this uh, article, so this is Francis McAndrew and Sarah uh, Koenke, perhaps, who are from the Department of Psychology at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. It was an article written up in Slate, um, and they say that it is the first ever empirical study of what is creepy, <laughs> which is pretty incredible that there's a first empirical study of anything anymore. You would think that almost everything has been thoroughly covered at some point. Um, but they say that the creepiest, they look at creepy attributes and creepy professions, creepy behaviors. Um, some of these are pretty funny, like licking lips, laughing at it. And licking lips really does, doesn't seem very creepy, but laughing in inappropriate moments, um, steering the conversation to sex regularly is creepy. Yes, that is definitely creepy. Um, some things like peculiar smiles, bags under your eyes. Yikes. I I guess I'm creepy. Yes. Some of these things I read, I'm like, greasy hair, pale skin, bags under the eyes, unkempt hair, and dirty clothing. I'm like, well, that's pretty much me on a Saturday morning <laughs> yeah. before I walk and get my coffee. So. Right. Looks in mirror. Oh, <laughs> Decides Lord. one is creepy. Yeah. But some of the, the most creepy occupations are clowns. I guess that's not a surprise. Taxidermists, sex shop owners, and funeral directors. That's pretty fun. I knew somebody who had someone in their family who was studying to be an undertaker, and they had, and the person who had was studying, they said that they had done a survey of the in, folks in the like graduate program or whatever it was, like, why are you going in this field? And they said, because I'm fascinated with death. Anyway, so that was a survey that maybe said, that is a little, <laughs> surprise, surprise. So anyway, that is another empirical study, I guess. But yeah, so lots of I, things. I'm fascinated also that they, they identified the least creepy profession in this study, which is meteorologist. I know, right? What makes meteorology, I mean, I, I guess what would make it creepy, but I mean, of all the professions, I wonder why that one is singled out as like, that's not creepy at all. I wonder about where pollsters would rank if we are considered creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I know you and I are typically not considered creepy, but except for the bags under the eyes thing. But well, And I also wonder how much, I mean, some of this has to, has to vary regionally, right? So for example, I am recording today from Cleveland, Ohio, where I just got off at the airport. Uh, And on my way to my hotel, uh, you know, while I was walking through the airport, like people just kept wanting to have conversations with me. Like everybody here is super nice and wants to talk. And I'm like, I got to get to my hotel because I got to tape the show with Margie. So like being like really like talkative with strangers, like sometimes I'm creeped out if like a random stranger I don't know just starts wanting to talk to me while I'm like, waiting in line somewhere but i think that's actually how normal nice human beings behave in like the midwest United States. i know it's tough so, it's tough at the airport i try to put on the like you know 
don't talk to me, I'm sleeping slash working thing. Cause, but I also do like to hear people's stories, you know, but sometimes I'm, you know, I'm just on break. But when all else fails, you can blame your, you know, public rudeness on me. That's totally I, I got to recharge my battery so I can do focus groups later. Like exactly. I'm going to spend hours listening to people. Yeah. I just need to be silent <laughs> and still and meditate for a little while. Can I, can I pay you $75 for you to come later and tell me that story? <laughs> <laughs> That would really be great. <laughs> so let's turn to something that is also creepy sometimes, and that's the 2016 race. Um, pollsters, I think we could take a bow yet again because I think the polls were at least helpful in knowing who the winners were going to be in Wisconsin. We just had one big out, you know, one big vote uh, this past week, just one state, and that was Wisconsin. And the polls showed headed into Wisconsin that Cruz and Sanders were going to win. And that's, in fact, what happened. Um, so I know a lot of times people kind of want to root for fi- polling failure. We did not have that this time. Um, but on the Democratic side, you know, you saw a lot of people calling it a reset or an upset. Sanders has won seven of the last eight contests. That includes Democrats abroad as one of those contests. Um is there still a path with pledge delegates? Uh, and what about superdelegates? So that's obviously a different calculation. The superdelegates can change their mind. You know, at the convention, they're unbound. They're unpledged as opposed to the pledge delegates coming from uh, where uh, the vote turnout. Um, I don't know if it's gotten really any harder post-Wisconsin. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily gotten any easier. Um, there is a cool slidey thing in the New York Times. We talked about Nate Cohn <laughs> at the top of the show, and Nate Cohn talked about the cool graphics that their team does. I think this is a real good example of graphics really helping tell a story and helping uh, readers get involved. So you can look at like if Clinton gets this percentage and Sanders gets 57 percent on average, then, you know, then what happens if Sanders gets 52 percent on average from here on out? Then what happens? And you can really see how the race moves. So that's pretty cool. Um, And so next up is Wyoming caucus this Saturday. Caucuses tend to be helpful for Sanders. But the big news is New York. And then that's so that's not this Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, the 19th. And then the following Tuesday after that, a whole bunch of mid-Atlantic and New England, northeastern states. So this is now kind of headed to, you know, the area of the country that's both Sanders and Clinton have some claim to. Um, and also you see, you know, the New York press taking the gigantic role that it has, the New York Daily News, the Times, all of the, you know, local reporters. Um, the New York press is really its own very vibrant animal. And it's uh, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely poised to have an impact on the race or certainly an impact on um, the coverage. Um, But nationally, the race, if you look at the Huffington Post average, is now five points spread on the Democratic side. So Clinton, 48, Sanders, 43. That's on the national primary average. The Democratic primary is narrowed considerably over the last few weeks. It's now a 10-point spread. Um, so it's definitely getting, you know, it seems like it's getting a little exciting over there. Um, but the question is, is it is it going to move quickly enough as much as it needs to in order for Sanders to overcome the obstacles that he has currently in terms of the math. So that's what people are spending a lot of time talking about uh, the last couple of days. And that's part of why you see the Democratic race in particular get heated, at, at least in the way we get heated um, over the last day or two, where you hear this talk about who's qualified or who's not qualified or what's disqualifying or unqualifying. Um, it's caused a Oh, my lot. God. That's like a G-rated 
did nice day on my That's, <laughs> You know, I said the same exact thing. I, I did TV today and I said, look, uh, we are talking about like different ways of using the word qualified. The Republican side is calling people, you know, con men and liars. And everyone acted like I was crazy. I mean, I guess we were on television. That was what we were supposed to do. I, but I said, I'm like, really, this is not this is not like the gloves are off. Everybody's got at each other's throats. We've gone bonkers. You know? <laughs> like, it's really seems so calm compared to, you know, uh, the cuckoo town, which, you know, the Republican side has been in kind of New York mode the whole time. You know, this is now seems they've been like in a New York street fight since the beginning. So well, we were already had we had the you know trump is just pure you know new york guy and then we had the fight over new york values back around iowa which is now coming back to haunt ted cruz uh so taking a look at the republican side of the aisle um you did have in wisconsin uh for the first time we're seeing that trump did not according to the exit polls have a significant gender gap. Um, This is something we've talked about before and where in a lot of states you had Trump with a fairly sizable gap where uh, he was struggling to get support from women. This is coming at the exact same time that Trump just, you know, had his comments last week about uh, abortion and punishing women who have abortions and then changed his position. Um, You've had, uh, I mean, this is just the the latest in a whole series of, of Trump saying things that would probably alienate women uh, stories, and yet this is the first state where the exit polls did not show a gender gap for Trump support. Um, but so what's next? So as, as Margie mentioned, New York is also up next on our side. Uh, things are pretty ugly there. Uh, you had Trump doing a rally in Long Island um, earlier this week. Uh, the, I mean, the gloves have been off for a while, but I think, you know, Trump used New York as home court advantage. Uh, and we're now into a bunch of states where uh, the, the question is still out there, what is Kasich doing? Why is John Kasich still in this race? What is possibly his play? Um, and I, I think some of it is, can you make the threshold and then take delegates away from Trump in some of these states? So take New York. Right now, Ted Cruz, according to the latest Monmouth poll that came out on the 6th, uh, Trump is at 52, Kasich is at 25, and Cruz is at 17. So Cruz is, is competing for second place in New York. I mean, Trump is definitely going to win the state, but I believe New York is one of those proportional states. Um, so, you know, it's okay. It's, you know, it's winner take most, but you can still pick, pick up a couple of delegates if you get past that 20% threshold. Clearly, Kasich thinks that he can do that. And if you also look at, say, uh, Pennsylvania, well, Pennsylvania is kind of weird because no matter who uh, wins the statewide, quote unquote, beauty contest, uh, you know, a lot of these delegates don't go to the convention like legally pledged uh, in in a in a serious way. So they would be sort of ripe ripe pickings if this becomes a, a contested convention. But there, you still have Trump up thirty nine over uh, Cruz at thirty and Kasich at twenty four. Um, if you take a look at a state like uh, California, which is the other big state that is currently looming, um, you had a Survey USA poll come out earlier this week that shows Trump at. 40 with Cruz at 32 um, and a similar poll, the, the field poll, which is considered one of those, you know, gold standard, really, really good and respected polls of uh, uh, good and respected polls of California with Trump up by seven again. But remember, California, as we discussed, I think last week 
is not winner take all. It is proportional by congressional district. And Cruz is doing really well in Los Angeles County. He's doing really well in a lot of places where he can amass huge buckets of delegates, even though he may not be winning statewide in the way that Trump is. So this is going to be completely crazy. Uh, And the states that are coming up are ones where Trump is in the lead in most of them. And it, it varies from state to state whether Kasich or Cruz is the better person to try to take delegates away from Trump. And that's why, even though everybody's like, Kasich, you have fewer delegates than Rubio. You're not winning anywhere. You should get out. This is why John Kasich is staying in. For all of you who are wondering, it's because he's looking at polls in places like uh, Maryland, and he sees that the Washington Post University of Maryland poll has him only down 10 from Trump, while Cruz is in a distant third because Maryland is not Cruz country. Um, So, you know, even though I think for a lot of these states, it's going to be hard to imagine John Kasich picking up many delegates. He still thinks that especially with these northeastern states coming up, that that is not Cruz territory. And so he should be able to at least get something. Yeah. I mean, if... They work together. Can Cruz and Kasich take Trump down or prevent him from getting to 1237? I think, you know, I think it's tough. I mean, I don't know if voters are really thinking about it that way. I mean, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I think there are maybe a lot of voters who are in New York or in Pennsylvania or Maryland who are looking at Kasich and saying, well, you know, I, I might prefer Kasich, but I just don't see how he gets to be the nominee. So, I don't know what to do. I'm not really a Cruz person. I'm not really a Trump person. Maybe I'll stay home. I mean, there there are a lot of people really, you know, struggling here. And there's no, it's not like people are getting instructions from on high. Like, okay, gang, <laughs> like let's all work together. No, all the control to- room is most definitely empty this cycle. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, people maybe do strategic voting, but everyone's their own strategist, right? So it's a little, it's a little tricky on the Republican side, which brings us to a really big study put out by Pew this week. And that's, this goes at, and there's a lot of cool stuff in there. So folks should take it, take a look. And as always, we have the links to everything in our show notes. Um, it, it confirms what we all suspect, which is there's a lot more there's a lot less unity on the Republican side than there is on the Democratic side. And Quinnipiac had some, I think it was Quinnipiac or was it Marist? Marist, I think, that had some data this past week that showed mo- you know, majority of Democrats who are voting for Clinton would vote for Sanders. And if she, you know, if he was the nominee, a majority of Sanders voters would vote for Clinton. If she was the nominee, you know, Sanders voters a little bit less than Clinton voters, but it's not dramatic. It's not like what's going on on the Republican side where Trump is the most divisive front runner in at least 20 years. You know, you have um, about, you know, just a third who say that the Republican Party will unite solidly behind Trump if he's the nominee. You didn't see that with Romney or McCain, where a majority would say, you know, they would unite solidly behind him. So um, people feel pessimistic about the party um, themselves uh, being able to, uh, to to be able to unite, um, particularly, you know, Trump voters in particular. Um they, you know, they, they feel that they're, you know, they're particularly concerned about it. And um, uh, Cruz and Kasich voters, t- two thirds of them say they have some, you know, disagreements that are going to keep them from from supporting Trump. So, I mean, there's a lot in here that I think would, you know, should make folks 
concerned um, about what's going to happen if Trump's the nominee. It's not just about what it means for the general. It's not about what it means for all the people outside the Republican Party who dislike Trump. It's, you know, within Republicans, there's a lot of consternation. The big thing that I am hoping someone will will do a survey question or two on, and I, I put this request out on Twitter. I'm putting it out here. If you've got good data on this question, send it our way. What I want to know is the answer to the question, if Donald Trump goes to the convention and he does not have a majority of delegates and through the process, he does not get handed the nomination. It ultimately goes to Ted Cruz or someone else. Um, would that be fair or unfair? Would it be unfair to not give Trump the nomination if he has the most delegates but not a majority when he arrives at the convention? Because this is what worries me. I think that we, because I, I tweeted this out yesterday, that I am now operating in the what's the worst possible thing that can happen? That's what's going to happen mode. Uh, and the worst possible thing I think that could happen would be that Trump gets is like a, a, a dozen or two dozen delegates short. Like he's really close to that majority, um, but it's going to go to a second ballot. Because you do have crews who has figured out that in a lot of these states, yeah, you have the statewide vote that picks who they have to stand with on a first ballot, but they're allowed to change on a second ballot. So he installs his supporters as the physical people that will go to the convention casting the vote, and then they can change their minds and they can become cruise backers. And that's totally within the rules. But would that cause outrage? Like, can you see people who are like, I don't even like Trump, but it seems really shady to me that they didn't give him the nomination. Like, how shady does it seem like this would be? Because um, that's why, why I think the party, I mean, so set aside the really inflammatory stuff that Trump has said, I think you, you're going to have this, you know, procedural, did my side get screwed over? by the process of the convention because we've ne I mean, we've had contested conventions on our side of the aisle as recently as I think 1976, right. um, but not in the age of Twitter. And you just, you know, yesterday or two days ago had a big Trump supporter go on um, a radio show and say like, I know people in all of the delegations. So we're going to go to the hotels of all of these delegates in Cleveland and like, let them know hey, don't you take this away from Trump. He got the most delegates. And, like, it's just going to be so bad. So I can see not only people being hesitant to get behind the nominee because they're worried about, you know, uh, did he say something inflammatory? But if they if Cruz is the nominee, would people get behind him? If Cruz is the nominee, even though he did not show up at the convention with the most delegates, that is the big, like scary mystery. Right. And then, you know, then the even crazier scenario is, is there some finagling with the rules is somehow that then it just gets awarded to somebody who came in third, like John Kasich, or somebody who wasn't even on the ballot, like Paul Ryan, right? Can, is that like an actual possible outcome? And will people get even more upset then? And and who are these people who get upset? And what's sort of the end goal? I guess the other, you know, the other thought process here is, Somebody's going to get upset. There is going to be heart, you know, hearts are going to get broken and uh, feelings are going to get trampled on. And what's good for the, you know, even if there's a short term cost for the party in overturning the will of the public, um, is there a long term cost for, you know, benefit for the party to have somebody who is not a drain on all town ballot candidates, who doesn't kind of cement the view that Republicans are um, intolerant and, you know, dangerous? Um 
so, you know, those are thankfully answers I don't have to answer. <laughs> those are the questions I don't have to answer. But they are things that people are talking about. And, I, you know, I think I feel like I've seen a poll on some of this. But I think it's going to be hard for people to even wrap their mind around that eventuality until it starts to happen. Well, uh, I... I'm here in Cleveland now. I'm not here for anything convention related, but I'm already starting to just be very apprehensive about what it's going to be like to even be here during the convention because this is getting, getting so nuts. So we shall see, but you know what? Maryland and Pennsylvania are going to vote on more than just president. Margie, what's coming up next in your home home state? Well, you know, in addition to being undecided, voter in the presidential primary. I'm also undecided in the Senate primary. It's just one more darn thing on my to-do list, which is to figure out, you know, how I'm going to vote. And it's tough. And, and you know, it, you have some some recent polling from uh, Washington Post and University of Maryland that shows it's a, it's a tight race. It really matters. Donna Edwards, who's a member of Congress, um, is at 44% in the latest Washington Post uh, poll. Chris Van Hollen's at 40%. That's margin of error stuff, basically, that can, you know, can go either way. Um, and she has an advantage over him on a variety of traits um, with a lot of, uh, you know, with gender and race being a real driving factor in a very diverse Democratic primary elector in the state um, and uh, a real division uh, over, you know, what are the key issues that are important here? Do we want to make sure that we have a you know diverse representation, not just in Maryland, but in the U.S. Senate? Um, it, it's certainly reflective of, of the diversity of leaders in the state and in, and in state representation um, versus Chris Van Hollen, who's obviously been a leader in the party himself. And, you know, what was interesting for me as an undecided voter is, you know, it turns out I actually needed some constituent services for my dad, who I take care of. Um, and in the last couple of weeks, and I contacted my state senator, who's also happens to be running for Chris Van Hollen's congressional seat. That's state senator Jamie Raskin, who's great. There are lots of great candidates, but I like Jamie Raskin. Um, and I contacted his office and they you know, threw it also up to uh, Van Hollen's office, and it got resolved lickety split, and it was not easy. And I could not get over how awesome collectively their constituent services was. I mean, it was I was just blown away about how awesome it was. And then upon looking a little bit more into the race, it turns out actually constituent services is one of the big differentiators between the two. Um, that's one of the main things that's in the Washington Post endorsement that people are talking about. My, you know, contacts who have worked with uh, worked with both. So it is something that, um, you know, it doesn't come up in a lot of poll questions. You know, candidates sometimes want to ask about it. Uh, it can certainly make a difference if you are in hostile territory. You know, candidates who walk, you know, walk their neighborhoods, who go to local, um, go to local events, who meet people, who have strong constituent services. That's how you overcome sort of tough environments. Chris Van Hollen obviously hasn't had a tough environment, but, you know, it does seem to make a real difference because it's made a difference in some of the endorsements and support that he's received. So anyway, it's given me a lot of stuff to think about. Um, when I hear words like, that pe people use to describe Donna Edwards, like, well, she doesn't get along with her colleagues. I wonder sometimes, like, do I take that at face value? Are some of those observations gendered in some way, maybe unconsciously? You know, it kind of reflects some of the things we say sometimes about Hillary Clinton and the things that people say about her, even though obviously these races are, are drastically different, this primary and the presidential primary. So 
Anyway, these are some of the issues that I've been kicking around as an undecided Democratic primary voter in Maryland. And I'm going to be sad also to give up my mantle as undecided voter, <laughs> but I'm going to have to make a decision soon. Um, but there are also there's also a big pr- uh, the primary that day in Pennsylvania for the Senate race. And that's where it will be a very contested general election. It's not likely to be contested in, in Maryland, but in Pennsylvania, one of the most battleground states uh, in the Senate is, is in the Senate race there against Pat, Pat Toomey. And there's some new polling there. What does that suggest, Kristen? Uh, so the polling in uh, Pennsylvania suggests that Pat Toomey is up at the moment against both of his potential Democratic opponents, but is below the 50 percent threshold that you really want to be at, ideally, if you are an incumbent running for reelection. Um, so right now, there on the Democratic side, there's a primary that's going to happen between Joe Sestak and Katie McGinty. Um, if you read in Politico this morning, there's uh, it's a little bit of a contentious story where Sestak uh, is not necessarily beloved by Democratic Party organizations. Um, He has a slightly better uh, favorable, unfavorable uh, than does Katie McGinty. But for the most part, a majority of Pennsylvania voters say they haven't heard of Joe Sestak and 64 percent of Pennsylvania voters say they have not heard of Katie McGinty. Um, Meanwhile, Pat Toomey, actually his fave unfave isn't so bad. Um, 45 percent favorable, 24 percent unfavorable. Again, you'd like to see higher, uh, but but it's still for any politician to be in positive territory these days isn't such a bad thing. Um, so then the real question is, how vulnerable is Toomey? Um, so at the moment, with the Sestak and McGinty primary happening, is there a risk that, you know, if the party spends too much money trying to get McGinty to win the primary over Sestak, then is that draining resources that they could put towards Taking uh, going against Toomey in the fall, um, and even though Toomey is up by by eight over Sestak and is up by nine over McGinty, um, he's still at forty seven percent. And generally in campaign polling, the sort of rule of thumb is if you are an incumbent running for reelection, you want to be at at least fifty percent. Yeah, and so it, you know some of these rules now are no longer as black and white as they once were. So the reason of that rule that you want to be uh, exceed majority support and that include that's if that's without including leaners. So ideally in the olden days, right, where people would use, you know, paper and pencil for all these things, right, you wanted to be exceed 50 percent before you included the people who were initially undecided. But when asked in a follow up, well, who do you lean? OK, well, I guess I lean toward Toomey or I guess I lean towards Sestak or McGinty. Um, you don't want to include those leaners. And that's a sign of strength because people who are undecided, who initially say, I'm undecided or just stay undecided. No, I don't know who I'm going to vote for, that those folks will break toward the challenger, that on Election Day, ultimately, they'll go to the polls and they'll say, you know, what? I've decided, you know, I've been undecided all this time. That means I really don't want to vote for Toomey. I'm going to vote for, you know, the, the Democrat. Um that's a little bit less true now than it used to be. It depends very much on the race now. It depends a little bit more on, you know, the who the candidates, the opponents are. Um, this far out, the fact that I think Toomey does basically the same compared what no matter who his opponent is. And Sestak is better known than McGinty means that, I mean, it suggests to me that, you know, that I think that's a good case to be made that McGinty can be, you know, is a worthwhile investment, right? If she's a worthwhile investment, if she's doing as well as someone who's better known than her. Mm-hmm. Um, but at any rate, you know, people look at that that uh, vote 
without leaners. That's important. Also, how your fave to unfave ratio. Here, there's no favorables. It's approval. But, you know, typically people want to look at a two to one or one and a half to one ratio of positive to negative or favorable to unfavorable. Now, that's very much a like olden time uh, <laughs> rule of thumb that hardly anybody gets, you know, hardly anybody reaches that these days because everybody hates everybody, all their elected leaders, you know, they basically hate them all. The fact that Toomey is doing as well here as he is, that it's 50 to 29, I mean, that's actually, you know, that's a sign of strength, even if he's at 47 in the in the head-to-head. So um, obviously there's a lot more than the horse race and the favorables, and someone who's working on all these campaigns would have a lot more data than just these two or three questions. But that's just a little view into how some people sometimes look at, look at some uh, horse race polling. So up next, we will have our normal uh, Ask a Millennial segment. And if you listen to our episode where Margie and I were out, uh, were up at Harvard, we uh, were, we were asked a question uh, about millennials, and I think we joked that, uh, or actually, was, Margie, was this at Harvard or was this on last week's show? I mean, it was some, I, I've sometimes made, last week you've made this reference. I feel no, I think it was at Harvard, and I, I probably have made. I think I've made this joke quite a few times. This is in my like you know top fifty polling bad polling jokes. <laughs> it's this you know like coverage bad coverage of millennials or of polling in general, where people make grand sweeping generalizations based on data. And there was a New York Times story, and this was a while ago, and it said, millennials love free Wi-Fi. When you go to a hotel, they really love free Wi-Fi, which is ridiculous because <laughs> obviously, ever, who doesn't want, you know, like, I'm not a millennial. I also want free Wi-Fi. What, I'm the suckers. I don't want to be the sucker who has to pay for it. Um, and then, so we made this joke at Harvard and everyone, you know, had a good chuckle at it because they're like, oh, I, I, like, I also like free Wi-Fi. And then, like, two days later, there was another story at the Times back on the a case to showing once again millennials like free wi-fi and not only that get get this they also like clean non-smoking rooms in their hotels which i just think that's so funny like as if the rest of us don't like clean non-smoking rooms so as much as i agree with the like oh my gosh i'm gonna roll my eyes this is so ridiculous um, and right now I am on free airport hotel Wi-Fi and it is delightful. Um, but I, I, I was reading through this and there were some things where I was like, millennials, no, stop it. Stop the generation. I want to get off. Like one of the things that it notes is that some hotel chains are allowing people to order room service by texting emoji to like some number. Like if you want some kind of food, I guess you text an emoji and like that is the signal to bring your food, oh. which that to me is like, okay, guys, we've gone too far. That's, we've gone too far. Yeah. Stop. Ban millennials. But then I realized, I thought, you know, I was at a hotel recently and when I checked in, they said, Hey, if you want, you know, give us your cell phone number. And then if you ever need anything from the front desk, you can just text us. If you need a wake up call, you need the airport shuttle or whatever. And I took advantage of that because as we established with my earlier anecdote about being in the airport and not wanting to talk to people, sometimes I don't like to talk to people. Right. <laughs> um, millennials, we are terrified of talking to people on the phone for some reason. I speak broadly for my generation. Not terrified, but uh, I prefer texting to chatting on the phone, I think. Um, so a- anyhow, you know, when I read that part of it, I was like, well, okay, I'm not 
going to text a string of emoji with my last name and room number so that somebody brings me a turkey club with honey mustard. Um, but I would like the ability to just text the front desk and be like, hey, can you give me a wake up call at 4.30 a.m.? Yes. Instead of having to go through the automated phone system or call a person at the front desk. Anyhow, so I digress. But some of this stuff I'm like, yeah. I can see some of this being millennial specific. Yeah. Now, I, I, the thought of having to figure out how to find the emoji that corresponds with whatever I want to eat just like fills me <laughs> with just anxiety <laughs> that I don't normally have. <laughs> that I'm not really very much. I'm going to look through the emoji on my phone now to see like what what the options could be. Like what would what would line up with what? Yeah. I mean, this is forcing me now to learn a new task. So I guess in that respect, I'm not like a millennial. I am like a millennial and then I like free and clean stuff. <laughs> that, that way I am like a millennial. But the other thing that was cool, and we'll link to this too, this was a different story. This was at Media Post um, and they did a roundup of some studies. I, you know, it's no surprise that millennials stream stuff on their phone. Obviously that's very millennially. Um, but people under 25, they're watching an average of 18 minutes of Netflix every day on their phones. I mean, that just seems like an incredibly high number to be the average. I, I don't know if that's like, I don't know if that's like, there's some subgroup here of under 25 year olds. I mean, obviously it's people with a smartphone, but still, even, even so that just seems so high and incredible. And I guess that is a real big difference in media usage. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, think about it this way. It may say an average of 18 minutes of Netflix every day, but think about how a lot of people watch Netflix. They don't just watch one episode of a show they binge watch or you know you're stuck at at an airport or you're stuck on a train or you're stuck in a waiting room and you know you see somebody they'll plug their headphones in and all right let's watch a couple episodes of new girl or something so i wonder if it's like if it's really like 18 minutes every day or if it comes in like big bursts like oh yeah at some point this week i watched like six episodes of the league back to back on my phone while i was you know, stuck somewhere or laying around in bed trying to go to sleep. And I wonder if that's part of it. Yeah, perhaps. But still, it, it still on average seems very, very high. But, you know, my new, it's, I guess this is a Netflix, this is iTunes. My binge, phone binge is um, uh, People versus OJ. So that is, so maybe I am like a millennial in that regard. <laughs> Welcome, welcome, as always. <laughs> Don't ask embrace... me to learn how to use an emoji. That just fills me with dread. <laughs> we embrace you. We embrace you. <laughs> so, um, well, and just as a as a heads up to our listeners, um, my firm, Echelon Insights, did a study with BuzzFeed uh, and in partnership with uh, Jeff Guerin at Heart Research. And I released some of the results of that study this morning on Morning Joe. Uh, but we'll talk a little more extensively about it next week once the full results are out. But lots of good stuff. Can't wait to share. Cool. Okay. So and last but not least, we have a new little segment perhaps we may start, which is reading things from the onion, <laughs> which is always a good treasure trove of political jokes. And so they had a step-by-step -step guide to the polling process. This was one of the more popular things on our Facebook page that did not have to do with Donald Trump or man sneaks into focus group um, <laughs> or anything like that. So it was pretty funny. They had 12 steps. Uh, first step, researchers begin by dialing every possible U.S. phone number, starting with 111-111-111, which sounds pretty horrible. Dinner interrupted. Yes, that's that's what happens. Um 
And then uh, Polster asked to speak with member of the household who best represents the nation as a whole. <laughs> Which is pretty funny because it's, you know, you're actually supposed to speak with somebody. I mean, there's a whole thing to it. Like if you can't actually go through the process of rant, if you don't have a person that you're supposed to reach who's on the list, you have to find a way to randomize, like, can I speak to the man or woman who had a birthday more recently or least recently? Um, and that's a way of kind of randomizing within households. You do not ask, obviously, as this joke says, <laughs> best represents the nation as a whole. But it is a good nod to actual polling thing. Um, Respondent selects poll difficulty of easy, medium, or hard. <laughs> I like that, that one. one. Speaks to me. That I one know. spoke to me very deeply. I know that one speaks to me too. I'm gonna we're gonna have to use that when the clients like, can we just ask this like ten paragraph thing? I'll be like, no, because no one selects poll difficulty of hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, thousands of poll respondents hearing candidates' names for the very first time and asked to make rational judgment about which one is better. Right? Okay. Good. What's wrong with that? It's <laughs> so, like a type we we were looking at all that polling about Iran and you had on the one hand people being like, do you support or oppose the Iran deal? And most people are like, uh, I guess I support it because deals are good. But then they had that other poll where they made the respondents read like 45 minutes of stuff about diplomacy with Iran before weighing in. Uh, most poll respondents are not getting the deep dive. So I enjoyed that one. Uh, yeah, no, that was good. Um, pollsters listen for key epithets in voters' rant to determine stance on immigration. Oh, that one makes me sad. Um, pollster, respondent, both silently wonder whether great cold call conversation could blossom into something more. <laughs> That's called establishing rapport with the person on the phone. <laughs> um, voters who are identified as undecided forced to stay on the line until they make up their minds. Um, that sounds pretty horrific. And then... Uh, we could skip a couple of these because they get a little long. But one of my favorites that I that I felt spoke to me is color palette for pie chart selected. Because <laughs> that was just my favorite part back when I was younger and I was just, you know, made charts all day. Just like coming up with some sort of, you know, before we had in, in-house graphic designers and all sorts of stuff. Like I really got – I really enjoyed making the charts and making them look as beautiful as possible. But finding the best clip art that represented, you know, where my client was from <laughs> <laughs> don't have to do that anymore. Better, better that we don't uh, we don't do charts that way anymore. I don't know. What did you think about this one? Uh, yes, yeah, so I that one spoke to me very deeply, um, and also not just color palettes, but fonts. I'm a crazy person about fonts, and so even though I am a partner at my own firm and like am the principal on a lot of projects, like a lot of firms, they'll have folks that are like the research assistants and stuff that will do the slide decks. And I do my own slide decks because I'm such a crazy person about them and getting things like just the right colors and stuff like this is this is a I'm a crazy person about it. So that one, it spoke to me as well. Yeah, no, and it makes a huge difference. I mean, I see some, you know, spruce up your decks, folks. Some of them really could use a little, uh, you know, use a little bit of an upgrade. Um, it definitely makes a difference in terms of people feeling like they are enjoying watching the PowerPoint. Um, so anyway, our key findings, uh, the race is headed to New York. That should calm things down. Um, I feel very qualified <laughs> to say Democrats feel more unified than Republicans, but I have only a few more weeks to call myself an undecided primary voter, and it's just another thing on my to-do list stressing me out. <laughs> we asked millennials if they like free stuff and clean stuff, and they said yes. And when we run out of things to say, which is never, we turn to the onion. 
You can find us at thepolsters.com or on Twitter at, at thepolsters. Individually, we're at Margie O'Mero and at Kay Soltis Anderson. We also post throughout the week on Facebook the stories that we'll be talking about later that week on the show. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, or something else. And be sure if you have not yet written a review and you love us, let us know and let the world know too. Great. Thanks, everybody.